now want to introduce our, our, our speaker for the evening. And it's an interesting thing because I talked to him first, I think we were figuring out, probably 23 years ago when he was our chapter president at Tulane, or when he was looking, I think, at forming a chapter at Tulane is when we talked, or he was, or he was in law school. Uh, and uh, he indeed... Did, did do that. And, you know, this was this was a long time ago. This was, you know, the weather outside reminds me in the the last symposium where we had a significant weather factor at all. And it was much more significant, frankly, than it's been here was we had a symposium at Harvard in 93, I think it was. And there was a blizzard that was blowing the doors of the, the windows of their moot courtroom open and shut during the panels. It was literally difficult. We was about as, it was less far from there to the hotel where the banquet was than from here to the hotel. And it was difficult to walk there because it was so icy. Um, and we didn't have any buses at that time, so we did manage to walk there. But it, it, it sort of reminded me. Uh, as a matter of fact, that, that, was a, that evening I announced that our next symposium was going to be at the University of Miami. And... There was a lot of enthusiasm, but I've learned to be careful about jokes because for the next six months, people were asking me about the symposium we're having at the University of Miami. But, but, but anyway, um, our, our, speak, our speaker today is someone who has had quite a, is, is still very young, but has had quite a, quite a distinguished and interesting and, uh, career, and, and not, not just in terms of starting the Federal Society chapter, I might add. I mean, he, was the, he was elected as the youngest attorney general in the state of Alabama. Um, uh, uh, actually, I think we, that was an appointment or an election? Yeah, appointment at first, and then you ran, re- ran and got reelected. Right? Yeah, that's that's what confused me. Um, uh, so he's an attorney general of Alabama. He, you know, after Tulane, he clerked for Judge Wisdom, um, and he'd he'd worked as a private attorney. Uh, and then he got appointed, as some of you may recall, uh, first with a recess appointment to the United States Court of Appeals for the Eleventh uh, Circuit, and then ultimately in uh, got confirmed by the Senate for that position. Um, he. Be- before that, though, he became quite known in a major uh, uh, d- discussion for one of his one of his decisions as attorney general. And I'm not going to go into that because I think he may touch on that in what he talks on. But uh, we are honored to have a speaker who grew up with the organization in a, in a, in a very real sense and was where many of you are in terms of he he was our chapter president, had started our chapter at Tulane, and uh, remained active with the organization throughout. And we are honored and thrilled to have the Honorable William Pryor as our keynote speaker for our banquet, uh, Judge Pryor. Thank you. Hey, John. Thank you, Jean, for the introduction and for the uh, trip down memory lane. Um, Jean and I do go a long way back uh, to some of the beginnings of the Federal Society. I um, enjoyed speaking with David and uh, Steve 
earlier this evening about it's hard to believe just how far the Federalist Society uh, has come. But um, it has been a very enjoyable association for me for the last 23 years. Uh, I don't think there's any organization in the United States that is doing more, has done more, and promises to do more to affect the legal culture and particularly to showcase more engaging and important debates about the law and legal policy than this organization. Now, that's the side of the Federal Society that I'm most familiar with. Uh, I know, though, that um, there are those, Gene uh, and Leonard, who say that, uh, that there's another side to the Federalist Society, that it just pretends to be uh, this debating society. The debating society is really all that I've ever seen. Uh, but, but, you know, tonight I've begun, I've begun to wonder if maybe they're, the critics, there's something to what they say, uh, particularly as I, um, as I heard about the award for Professor Kerr and, uh, and then heard Gene's introduction. I, I thought really Gene had introduced me or encouraged me to get here tonight. Uh, in fact, it went to great lengths to get me here tonight because he was actually interested in some of the things that I might have to say uh, to cap off this symposium. But now I'm convinced that he really just wanted me to be here as, as, as a visible sign that 20 years after you join the Federalist Society, you too can be a federal judge. <laughs> Let's just keep it all in here. <laughs> Our secret. In his immortal play, A Man for All Seasons, Robert Bolt provides a fictional account of an argument between Sir Thomas More, who served as the Chancellor of England and would later become the patron saint of lawyers and judges, and his son-in-law, William Roper. Their argument is about the demands of fidelity to both law and morality. In the course of that argument, Moore pleads, The law, Roper, the law. I know what's legal, not what's right, and I'll stick to what's legal. Roper then makes two provo provocative charges against Thomas Moore. First, Roper asserts to Moore, Then you set man's law above God's. More response in the negative. No, far below. But let me draw your attention to a fact. I'm not God. The currents and eddies of right and wrong, which you find such plain sailing, I can't navigate. I'm no voyager. But in the thickets of the law, oh, there, I'm a forester. I doubt if there's a man alive who could follow me there. Thank God. Later, Roper charges, so now you'd give the devil benefit of law. To that charge, Moore responds in the affirmative and asks a question of Roper. Yes, what would you do? Cut a great road through the law to get after the devil? Roper then falls into the trap when he answers, I'd cut down every law in England to do that. 
Moore then offers the most memorable lines of the entire play. Oh, and when the last law was down and the devil turned round on you, where would you hide, Roper? The laws all being flat. This country's planted thick with laws from coast to coast. Man's laws, not God's. And if you cut them down and you're just the man to do it, do you really think you could stand upright in the winds that would blow then? Yes, I'd give the devil benefit of law for my own safety's sake. Robert Bolt's portrait of St. Thomas More offers lawyers and judges the right role model. I've been asked to conclude this symposium on law and morality by reflecting on my personal experiences both formerly as a state attorney general and as a nominee for a federal judgeship who was embroiled in controversies about the potential conflict of moral and legal duties. The stakes of those controversies, thankfully, were not nearly as high as those that led to the execution of St. Thomas More, but they were at least high drama in the contemporary arena of American law and politics. In each instance, the law offered me the right path to follow. My first experience came in June 2003, two months after President Bush nominated me to serve as the United States Circuit Judge. That nomination was controversial for several reasons. Among them, my public statement as a politician that Roe versus Wade was the worst abomination of constitutional law in our history. Now that I'm a judge, I don't have an opinion about it. <laughs> my defense as attorney general of an Alabama law that made sodomy a crime, and even my decision as a parent to plan a family vacation at Disney World so as not to coincide with the gay day festivities at the park. During my confirmation hearing, a few members of the Senate Judiciary Committee raised questions about my, quote, deeply held beliefs and whether I was, quote, asserting an agenda of my own, a religious belief of my own, inconsistent with separation of church and state. When the committee chairman, Senator Hatch, responded to these statements by asking me about my Catholic faith and then asserting that in every case he could see, I had followed the law regardless of my own religious beliefs, two other senators objected to Chairman Hatch's reference to my religion. Later that summer, an interest group sponsored political advertisements that described opponents of my confirmation to the federal bench as engaged in discrimination against me based on my Catholic faith. The advertisement portrayed a sign that read, Catholics need not apply, hanging on a door to a federal courthouse. That advertisement created um, a bit of a stir in the Senate and a lively debate in national newspapers and magazines. My second experience came at the end of that same summer, when Roy Moore, who was then the Chief Justice of Alabama, refused to obey an injunction of a federal district court that required the removal of a monument of the Ten Commandments from the rotunda of the Alabama Judicial Building. As Attorney General, I publicly disagreed with Moore and assisted the Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of Alabama in ensuring compliance with the injunction. 
after the Alabama Judicial Inquiry Commission then filed charges of misconduct against Moore, I prosecuted the charges in the Alabama Court of the Judiciary, which unanimously granted my request to remove Moore from his judicial office. Throughout these experiences about the potential conflict of legal and moral duties, my perspective has been that I should follow the example of Sir Thomas More. My Catholic faith is the foundation of my worldview, and my judicial duty is governed from beginning to end by the law. Faith properly informs the religious lawyer or judge, and morality is not in tension with fidelity to the law. I will first address my perspective about the controversy that affected my judicial nomination, the role of religion in judging. Religious faith properly informs me as a judge in my fidelity to my judicial duty in at least four ways. In my understanding of my oath of office, in my moral duty to obey lawful authority, and in my responsibility to work both diligently and honestly. Each of these ways is motivational. That is, each concerns the judge's duty to perform his work well. None involves using religious doctrine to decide a case in conflict with law. The most fundamental way that faith properly matters to me as a judge is in my understanding of my oath of office. The framers required in Article 6 of the Constitution that all officers of our government, including judges, be bound by oath or affirmation to support the Constitution. In the next part of that clause, they provided that no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. The framers thought that the particular religious beliefs of the judge should not matter, but that it was crucial for the judge to have his conscience, as informed by those beliefs, bound by the Constitution. Many of the states had a different rule. Delaware, for example, in Article 22 of its Constitution of 1776, required officers to profess faith in God the Father and in Jesus Christ as only Son and in the Holy Ghost, one God blessed forevermore, and to acknowledge the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be given by divine inspiration. Vermont. In Chapter 2, Section 9 of its Constitution of 1777 required legislators to declare, I do believe in one God, the creator and governor of the universe, the rewarder of the good and punisher of the wicked, and I do acknowledge the scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be given by divine inspiration and own and profess the Protestant religion. I'm especially grateful that last line of the Vermont Constitution did not become part of the federal Constitution. <laughs> Lots changed in Vermont. <laughs> During the ratification process, some Americans objected to the ban of religious tests, as many Protestants feared the election or appointment of Catholics to federal office. James Iredell, a delegate to the North Carolina Convention, provided my favorite rejoinder to these objections when he rose to defend the ban on religious tests on July 30, 1787. His words were especially memorable for Catholics. Iredell said, I met by accident with a pamphlet this morning in which the author states as a very serious danger that the Pope of Rome might be elected president. I confess this never struck me before. 
And if the author had read all the qualifications of a president, perhaps his fears might have been quieted. No man but a native and who has resided 14 years in America can be chosen president. I know not all the qualifications for Pope, but I believe he must be taken from the College of Cardinals. And probably there are many previous steps necessary before he arrives at this dignity. A native of America must have very singular good fortune, who after residing 14 years in his own country, should go to Europe, enter into Romish orders, obtain the promotion of cardinal, afterwards that of Pope, and at length be so much in the confidence of his own country as to be elected president. It would still be more extraordinary if he should give up his popedom for our presidency. (laughs) Sir, it is impossible to treat such idle fears with any degree of gravity. The framers' general understanding was that prescribing religious tests did not necessarily remove the religious significance of the general oath. James Madison, the father of the Constitution, for example, explained in a letter to Edmund Pendleton in 1787 that an oath should make a religious test unnecessary. Madison wrote, is not a religious test as far as it is necessary or would operate involved in the oath itself. If the person swearing believes in the supreme being who is invoked and in the penal consequences of offending him, either in this or future world or both, He will be under the same restraint from perjury as if he had previously subscribed a test requiring this belief. If the person in question be an unbeliever in these points and would notwithstanding take the oath, a previous test could have no effect. He would subscribe to it as he would take the oath without any principle that could be affected by either. Madison's argument, as expressed by others as well, was that a religious believer would take an oath seriously, without need of a religious test, and that a religious test could be declared by an unprincipled atheist without fear of punishment after that. Either way, a religious test was unnecessary. When I placed my left hand on the Holy Bible and swore to perform all the duties incumbent upon me as the United States Circuit Judge under the Constitution and laws of the United States, and swore that I would well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office on which I'm about to enter, so help me God, my conscience was and remains affected by my religious beliefs. Were it not so, what would be the point of placing my hand on the Bible or ending the oath with the declaration, so help me God? Taking a false oath is a violation of the second commandment not to take the name of the Lord in vain. As the Catechism of the Catholic Church explains, taking an oath or swearing is to take God as witness to what one affirms. It is to invoke the divine truthfulness as a pledge of one's own truthfulness. An oath engages the Lord's name. My entire understanding of my judicial duty flows from taking my oath seriously. James Madison and the other framers of the Constitution expected nothing less. My religious faith also informs my perspective of my judicial duty to obey lawful authority. I believe I have a moral obligation to obey our government and its laws. Before I became a judge, this perspective informed my decision as the Attorney General of Alabama to obey the federal injunction that required the removal of the monument of the Ten Commandments in the State Judicial Building, to which I will return in a moment. My moral duty to obey the law pertains to my judicial duty now 
as, just as it pertained to my executive duty then. My faith informs my judicial duty in a third way, by inculcating me with a belief in the moral duty to work. I believe that work is, in a real sense, a form of prayer. This religious belief motivates my commitment to my oath to well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office of a circuit judge. The final way my faith informs my performance as a judge is by teaching me to be honest. The moral duty of honesty requires both truthfulness and communication and reasoning and respect for the property of others. This duty is reflected in the commandments against bearing false witness and stealing, respectively. Regarding the former, the catechism has the following strong words about the necessity for truth and a judicial system that we can all appreciate. When it is made publicly, a statement contrary to the truth takes on particular gravity. In court, it becomes false witness. When it is under oath, it is perjury. Acts such as these contribute to condemnation of the innocent, exoneration of the guilty, or the increased punishment of the accused. They gravely compromise the exercise of justice and the fairness of judicial decisions. Although my religion properly informs and motivates me to be faithful to my oath of office and my moral duties to obey the government and its laws and to work both diligently and honestly, there is a limit to the relevance of religion and the performance of my judicial duty. That limit is defined by the very nature of my judicial authority. Properly understood, the exercise of my authority as a federal judge is governed by the law alone, and that understanding is where the real controversy exists in the contemporary debate about judicial authority. As a judge, I am not given the authority to use a personal moral perspective to update or alter the text of our Constitution and laws. The business of using moral judgment to change the law is reserved to the political branches, which is why the officers of those branches are regularly elected by the people. A judge's task is limited to serving in Chief Justice Roberts' words as an umpire, so that controversies between citizens and officers of their government may be resolved based on the law. For that limited task, a federal judge is granted a privilege designed to secure his independence, life tenure with no reduction in salary, except by inflation. (laughs) An officer of a political branch such as Congress is free to propose changes in the law that conform with his perspective of morality as informed by his religion. For centuries, members of Congress have supported a variety of new laws on this kind of basis, whether to abolish slavery withdraw troops from foreign wars, abolish child labor, guarantee civil rights, provide assistance to the poor and sick, protect marriage, or prohibit the sale of intoxicating liquors. Glad that didn't happen tonight. (laughs) The changing of laws enacted by political authorities is not a judge's task. The duty of a judge is the application of those laws and controversies within the jurisdiction of the courts. I do not mean to suggest that the task of judging is either mechanical or easy. The meaning and application of the law is sometimes difficult to discern, which is why judges sometimes disagree in good faith. The duty to administer justice requires the exercise of judgment. 
but not the employment of religious doctrine as a source of authority to supplant or evade the law when judging becomes difficult or its outcome undesirable. A judge who is motivated by moral duties to fulfill his oath and obey the law must strive to be as objective as possible using traditional methods of construction, reliance on precedent, and legal reasoning. This limited understanding of the judicial role has served our nation well for more than two centuries. It has allowed our judiciary as a separate branch to perform when necessary its vital role of demanding compliance with the Constitution. In short, the rule of law that flows from the separation of powers has preserved our freedom. With that understanding of my moral and legal duties in mind, allow me to return to my experience as the Attorney General of Alabama to illustrate how my understanding guided me. In the days following the removal of his monument of the Ten Commandments, Chief Justice Roy Moore and his prominent supporters advanced three arguments against those of us who complied with the federal injunction. They argued, first, that we had a moral duty to acknowledge God that required us to disobey the injunction. Second, as they surrounded the state judicial building in hopes of preventing the removal of the monument, Moore's prominent supporters compared their struggle with that of the civil rights movement led by Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. In turn, they compared those of us who complied with the federal injunction with the defenders of racial segregation. Finally, Moore argued that we had a duty to disobey the injunction as we would, he argued, if the injunction had allowed slavery. I disagreed with Moore. I argued that I had a moral duty as a Christian to obey the federal injunction. There was no moral justification for civil disobedience. My oath to uphold the U.S. Constitution required me as Attorney General to obey the injunction without regard to whether I agreed with the basis for that injunction. My moral duty was not in conflict or even tension with my legal duty. My Christian duty instead provided the foundation for my public duty. I explained that the Christian duty to obey the government and its laws is clearly expressed in the New Testament. In St. Matthew's Gospel, Jesus gave a provocative lesson about the moral duty to obey the government. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. In his epistle to the Romans, the Apostle Paul taught, Let everyone obey the authorities that are over him, for there is no authority except from God, and all authority that exists is established by God. And in his first epistle, Peter wrote, Because of the Lord, be obedient to every human institution, whether to the emperor as sovereign or to the governors he commissions for the punishment of criminals and the recognition of the upright. Such obedience is the will of God. During the several years that I served as Attorney General, I defended the constitutionality of depicting the Ten Commandments in a courthouse. I assisted our governor in creating a display of several foundations of our law, including the Ten Commandments in the old Supreme Court Library of our state capitol. I publicly agreed with the opinion written by then-Chief Justice Rehnquist that the Ten Commandments have made, quote, a substantial contribution to our secular legal codes. Nevertheless, in the controversy about Roy Moore, I was obliged, morally and legally, to obey the injunction of the federal court. 
removing the monument of the Ten Commandments from the building of the government did not require me or another official to violate a moral duty. Christ did not command anyone to maintain a monument of the Ten Commandments in the rotunda of a courthouse. The legality of a monument in the rotunda of Caesar's courthouse is a question for Caesar. What about the second accusation? Did compliance with the injunction violate the civil rights of Christians? Were the protesters outside the state judicial building engaged in rightful civil disobedience? Was Chief Justice Moore the new Dr. King and I the modern-day Bull Connor? The answer to all these questions is no. The authoritative text on this issue I submit is the letter written by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. from the Birmingham City Jail on Easter weekend in 1963. That letter was addressed to liberal white clergy of Birmingham who, who opposed segregation but, but did not support Dr. King's nonviolent protest against racial discrimination. The white religious leaders argued that as a Christian, Dr. King had a duty to obey the government. Dr. King responded that he was not obliged to obey an immoral or unjust law. King argued, based on the writings of St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas, that an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal law and natural law. King contended that segregation statutes are unjust because segregation distorts the soul and damages the personality. He explained a law is unjust if it is inflicted on a minority that as a result of being denied the right to vote had no part in enacting or devising the law. He concluded that a law is unjust when it is used to deny citizens the First Amendment privilege of peaceful assembly and protest. Dr. King's case was that segregation treated black persons as less than citizens and gave them no political recourse to remedy their injury. Then King explained the difference between unjust defiance and just civil disobedience. He wrote, In no sense do I advocate evading or defying the law, as would the rabid segregationist. That would lead to anarchy. One who breaks an unjust law must do so openly, lovingly, and with a willingness to accept the penalty. I submit that an individual who breaks a law that conscience tells him is unjust and who willingly accepts the penalty of imprisonment in order to arouse the conscience of the community over its injustice is in reality expressing the highest respect for the law. Dr. King's letter belies any comparison of the civil rights protests of 1963 in Birmingham and the protest of Roy Moore and his supporters in 2003 in Montgomery. The injunction to remove the monument did not distort the soul or personality of Christians because Christianity is not dependent upon the presence of a monument in a government building. The injunction did not represent a government denial of political recourse for Christians. Christians still enjoy the constitutional rights to vote, hold office, speak, exercise our faith, and assemble. Indeed, the election of Roy Moore and the peaceful protests for two, week outside, for two weeks outside our state judicial building, complete with extensive freedom of the press, illustrated the vitality of the civil rights of Christians. 
The most fundamental distinction between Dr. King's example and Roy Moore's example is the difference between defiance of the law and civil disobedience. Dr. King expected the law he called unjust to be enforced against him, but Roy Moore and his supporters said that they expected our state officials not to enforce the injunction. Dr. King was a private citizen who, in his words, lovingly accepted the punishment of an unjust law, but Roy Moore was a public official who refused to obey and sought to evade any punishment or responsibility. A private citizen may, in extreme circumstances, engage in civil disobedience by accepting the punishment of an unjust law, but a public official has no such option. A public official is sworn to uphold the law. Perhaps the greatest irony was the reaction of Roy Moore's supporters following the removal of the monument from the rotunda. When we complied with the injunction, the supporters of Moore called on me to resign. As a public official, if I'm ever unable to fulfill my oath and obey the law, then I should resign. The duty of a public official brings me to my response to Roy Moore's final contention, that we were obliged to disobey the injunction as he argued we would disobey an order allowing slavery. After the associate justices unanimously ordered the building manager to comply with the injunction, Roy Moore said, if the rule of law means to do everything a judge tells you to do, we would still have slavery in this country. This assertion is contrary to the American history of the abolition of slavery, especially the example set by the great emancipator Abraham Lincoln. An infamous decision of the Supreme Court, of course, promoted slavery. In 1857, the Supreme Court ruled in Dred Scott v. Sanford that the Missouri Compromise, which prohibited slavery in western territories, was unconstitutional and that blacks were not citizens. Abraham Lincoln argued that Dred Scott was wrongly decided and must be opposed. But Lincoln's perspective about the proper response to Dred Scott is instructive. In October 1858, Lincoln explained in one of his famous debates with Stephen Douglas as follows. We oppose the Dred Scott decision in a certain way. We do not propose that when Dred Scott has been decided to be a slave by the court, we as a mob will decide him to be free. We do not propose that when any other one or one thousand shall be decided by that court to be slaves, we will in any violent way disturb the rights of property thus settled. But we nevertheless do oppose that decision as a political rule which shall be binding on the voter to vote for nobody who thinks it is wrong, which shall be binding on the members of Congress or the president to favor no measure that does not actually concur with the principles of that decision. We propose so resisting it as to have it reversed if we can and a new judicial rule established on this subject. Lincoln explained that there were two ways of opposing a decision of the court allowing slavery. One method of opposition was illegitimate and to be avoided. The other method of opposition was legitimate and necessary. The illegitimate opposition was defiance of a final order of a court. Lincoln recognized that the Constitution in Article III created a federal judiciary to resolve disputes particularly involving the interpretation of the Constitution. Upon resolution of their dispute, the parties to the lawsuit in Lincoln's view were obliged to follow the orders of the court and non-parties were obliged to respect the resolution of that dispute between the parties. 
public officials sworn to uphold this constitutional framework for resolving disputes were obliged to enforce the final orders of this process as between the parties without regard to the public officials opinion of the correctness of the ruling. The legitimate method of opposition, according to Lincoln, was political. Voters should support candidates who would work to end slavery. Elected representatives should enact laws to end slavery. And the judiciary should, in proper cases, reverse its erroneous decisions that promoted slavery. Lincoln also supported another more provocative method of opposition. Lincoln refused to allow the Dred Scott decision to bind his administration. Lincoln required his administration, for example, to issue a passport to a black student and a patent to a black inventor. Lincoln supported policies of the government that challenged the continued application of Dred Scott because Lincoln considered these policies constitutional, notwithstanding the erroneous precedent in Dred Scott. As Lincoln explained in his inaugural address, the candid citizen must confess that if the policy of the government upon vital questions affecting the whole people is to be irrevocably fixed by decisions of the Supreme Court, the instant they are made in ordinary litigation between parties and personal actions, the people will have ceased to be their own rulers, having to that extent practically resigned their government into the hands of that eminent tribunal. When the judiciary interprets the Constitution erroneously, the American people still retain all the lawful tools of political opposition that President Lincoln employed. The American people can campaign for different policies. The American people can elect candidates who will enact their favored policies. Elected officials can appoint judges faithful to the rule of law. The American people can bring new cases before the courts and urge the overruling of erroneous precedents. If necessary, the American people can even amend the Constitution. But defiance of the law is not a remedy under the Constitution. Contrary to Roy Moore's argument, slavery did not end through the defiance of an injunction of a, by a public official. Slavery was abolished following our bloody civil war with the adoption of the 13th Amendment to the Constitution. The rebellion of the southern states set the wrong example of defiance. Many might say, and I would agree, that it is easy to see why Roy Moore was wrong to take the law into his own hands. Because our liberty depends on the rule of law, we are all bound to obey, even when we disagree with the decisions of our courts. As St. Thomas More said, the law, Roper, the law, I know what's legal, not what's right, and I'll stick to what's legal. But the controversy about Roy Moore raises another question. What about those who applaud or publish glowing editorials when other judges place their own different notions of morality above the law. That wrong can be done from either the right, as in the case of Roy Moore, or the left. The law is not a mirror that will always reflect our individual notions of right and wrong. For courts, questions about morality, including the death penalty, marriage and family, for example, are to be resolved based on the law, not based on what a majority of lawyers or judges think the law should be. Legislators and voters may change the law and be informed by morality in that endeavor, but none of us has the authority to defy or subvert the law in the name of morality. Faced with a conflict of law and morality, we should follow the example of St. Thomas More. 
who resigned as Lord Chancellor after King Henry VIII left his wife Catherine for relations with Anne Boleyn and the clergy surrendered the property of the church in England to the king. When the English Parliament passed the Act of Succession, which made Anne Boleyn's issue first in succession to the crown, St. Thomas More said he would swear to the succession, for it was the law of the land, but he refused to declare the supremacy of the king over the church. St. Thomas More recognized clearly his duty to render to God what belongs to him while rendering to Caesar what belongs to him. In his devotion to duty, St. Thomas More paid the ultimate price. As More succinctly explained a moment before his execution, he died the king's good servant and God's first. St. Thomas More lovingly accepted the punishment of an unjust law like Dr. King did centuries later in America. Both St. Thomas More and Dr. King rejected the path of defiance, evasion, and subversion of law. They recognized that path would lead, in Dr. King's words, to anarchy, when moral duty instead required the highest respect for the law. Those who would, like William Roper or Roy Moore, cut down the law to get after the devil, risk falling into his trap. When the devil turns around, where will they hide? The laws all being flat. For me, I will strive to follow St. Thomas More's example and give even the devil the benefit of law for my own safety's sake. Thank you, and may God bless you. Answer a few questions. Uh, I think it's going to be hard for him to see from up here, um, but uh, so he doesn't see you wave wave your, your hand. It may be hard for me to answer some of the questions. Yes, sir. I wanted to ask you. I'm fully in agreement with you. Yeah. The fact is that all 50 state constitutions, yeah, constitutions, yeah, right. recognize God. Right. Right. I don't know if Moore brought that out about yeah. all the states. Yeah. He didn't say that about Alabama. Right. Did you have a question? Yes. <laughs> How do you respond to that fact? Well, there's language in Article 6 uh, of the Constitution, uh, sometimes called the Supremacy Clause, that makes it pretty clear uh, that at the end of the day, if there's a conflict with the state constitution, it's the, uh, it's the United States Constitution that, uh, that controls. Now, uh, that same Constitution, the, the Constitution that we call the Supreme Law of the Land, creates a method for us to resolve disputes that arise under the Constitution. It allows us to take cases or controversies under Article 3, 
to the federal judiciary for resolution. No one has ever believed that that necessarily means that the federal judiciary is always going to get the answers right. But it does mean that when they're given the cases or controversies to resolve, that uh, we're to respect the resolution by that branch. It doesn't mean, as Lincoln explained, that it uh, forever fixes the rule that will govern our affairs from, uh, from thenceforth. But it does mean that it, at least as between the parties, we're to, to respect the resolution. Uh, Roy Moore had an opportunity to hire the lawyers that he wanted. I had offered to represent him as Attorney General of Alabama uh, in the litigation involving his monument. He wanted his own legal team. He had a legal team. They went to a federal district court. They made their arguments there. They had a ruling there. They appealed. They had a ruling from the court on which I now sit. And then they petitioned the Supreme Court of the United States. And that court declined review. And at the end of the day, with an order that was directed against him personally as a party to that litigation, he had an obligation to respect that under the Constitution. That's what I say. It's not always the case that you have to comply with if they well, we have a way of resolving whether the order is unlawful un- under the, uh, the system of law that we have. Uh, Roy Matt Moore had an opportunity to make his argument in the, in the United States Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit that the order of the district court was unlawful. He had the opportunity to convince the Supreme Court of the United States to review, review the case and consider his argument that the order was unlawful. He failed in those attempts. And what I don't think is that a single chief justice of a state has the ability to declare for himself what is lawful and not un- or not unlawful. One of the last questions I asked on cross-examination of Roy Moore was whether he had ever written a dissent. He said he had. And I said, well, when a case is remanded from the Supreme Court of Alabama, what's the trial judge supposed to do? Follow the majority opinion or your dissent? I have no doubt that when when he filed a dissent, he believed he was correctly interpreting the law. But at the end of the day, as a party to that litigation, who had his opportunities under our system to make his argument that the, the order was unlawful, he was bound when all those remedies had expired to obey. Yes. John Baker. That's 78, not 10, John. <laughs> first, you were the first one who ever taught me about 10. <laughs> Thank <laughs> <laughs>
uh, and John were imprisoned and then or, and released, but ordered not to preach the gospel as they had been instructed to do by an angel, uh, they explained that they could not obey uh, man's if if what it meant was uh, to violate a moral duty imposed by God. That's why I referred to uh, the fact that at least in my pers- from my perspective. Uh, Christ did not command us to erect a monument of the Ten Commandments in a courthouse. And how we decorate Caesar's courthouse is a question for Caesar. Uh, that, that's different from when uh, the king on the one hand, King Henry VIII on the one hand, says that, uh, and Parliament say that, um, that Anne Boleyn's issue are first in succession to the crown, a law that St. Thomas More would respect. What he wouldn't respect was the law that declared the supremacy of the king over the church. That violated a moral duty, and he wouldn't uh, assent uh, to that law. I haven't faced that kind of conflict. I haven't had to enforce or apply uh, a law that would cause me to violate uh, a moral duty. And at the end of the day, I have to, in respect of my conscience, obey my moral duty. But I would say this. If I ever face that conflict, and I think it is highly unlikely that I ever would, I think the remoteness of that for any federal judge is um, extreme. But if I were to face that conflict, my responsibility would be either to recuse myself or resign, because I also have an obligation as a public official, so long as I'm going to hold the public office, to uphold the law. St. Thomas More resigned as Lord Chancellor. He, he was true to both the duty to obey what was God's and what was Caesar's. I think Judge... I, I, I wasn't pointing at you, Professor Growlie, but <laughs> on purpose. <laughs> but, but, you, but, you, but I will give you the next question. <laughs> yes, sir. You are standing. It's appropriate for a senator to inquire Oh, now that's a question I'm not going to answer. <laughs> I can happily say that um, although I have a perspective that on balance, the confirmation process is still um, a good process uh, for the judiciary. That is my perspective. Uh, and that uh And it is a necessary check of political and uh, public accountability uh, for the judge, for the judiciary. Uh, It's really the place of the senators uh, to answer those kinds of questions. And I'm not going to I don't think now in my present position, it's for me to say what senators should or should not be asking of uh, judicial nominees. So happily, I don't have to worry about it anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Professor Crowley. That your answer to uh, John Baker invalidates Hamilton's defense of judicial review. Hamilton said when Brutus came forward, right. quite accurately said these people will be the most powerful judges on earth. They soon will feel themselves above heaven. Right. And is correct. Right. Hamilton, in some attempt to answer that, not a very effective right. one. But remember, they they control neither the first nor the sword. Right. They don't have any power. Right. But if it is the case right. that the president, like Eisenhower, sends in the troops to start the Little Rock, right. they do control the sword. If, in fact, the sword will not conflict or will not in any way object to them, 
if a district judge in Kansas City can order Missouri to spend $2 billion. Do you have a question, Professor Gralia? <laughs> <laughs> So a president should be able to say... But Professor Grau, do you have a question? <laughs> should not a president be able to say that your orders, Judge, to what you're planning to do to Kansas City by ordering them to spend $2 billion and by ordering them to uh, have asking me to have troops to support this, I believe is unconstitutional. I agree with Jefferson that I have fully as much right to understand the Constitution as you do. Well, I would be, I, I, I be, I, well, um, I'd be loath to say that I disagreed with Hamilton ever, but it makes it a lot easier if it would make me in agreement with Jefferson. And, and, and I would say that when Alexander Hamilton was saying in 78 that he was answering that anti-federalist charge that the judiciary would be unaccountable and out of control and he he explained that the judiciary has neither force nor will but merely judgment that it would be the least dangerous branch it would depend on the legislature for the purse and for the uh, executive for the sword uh, even for the efficacy of its own orders that what he was referring to was the institutional independence of the judiciary, not the decisional independence of the judiciary. Elsewhere in, in Federalist 78, he's very explicit about the complete decisional independence of the judiciary, but insofar as the institutional independence of the entire branch of judicial government, he recognized it as a, a vulnerable and weak, uh, dependent uh, a, a branch. And with that, with that uh, I, I agree. Uh, but I don't think that it's, it's, it's right to say, and if, and if he meant to say, I disagree with him, that as between the parties to a particular lawsuit, that the president uh, should not respect the dispute resolution that Article 3 provides. That's, that's my perspective. Last question. Yeah. I can't call on whoever ever it is. They'll just have to say it. I'd like to go back to your statement about judging simply by the law and not bringing in any personal views. I have a jurisprudence. I said, well, I said I wouldn't bring in religious doctrine. Right. I have a professor who makes much of the fact that the law is indeterminate, underdetermined, if not indeterminate. And if there's a point where the law simply runs out and there is no law, I'd like to know, do you believe that is true? If not, why not? If such a point points to a case like Dudley Stevens, if such a point is reached, what is a judge to do who is bound simply to apply the law? Well, happily I can say that... Um, my third anniversary as a federal judge was um, this past week, and uh, I, I've not had the occasion when I thought that the law was indeterminate, that I was at, at adrift at sea, hopelessly lost in trying to find the right legal answer to immigration cases or criminal sentencing or uh, uh, employment, discrimination, employment discrimination cases, the myriad uh, categories of cases that we see. 
Uh, I do recognize that there are some uh, there are some judges, particularly at the state level, who perform, uh, particularly at the trial level, a very different role from the role that I perform as a federal appellate judge. Uh, it's one thing to say that I feel that that my experience and my perspective is that my method of judging can be very objective, that there are right answers and wrong answers to the questions that come before me. It's another thing, perhaps, uh, I haven't had the experience of having to decide what is in the best interest of a child in a, in a custody dispute or whether um, uh, the aggravating circumstances outweigh mitigating and whether in determining whether to enter a sentence of death is the appropriate punishment in a criminal case or whether uh, a, a minor uh, female is um, mature enough to make her own decision about whether to terminate the life of her unborn child. Uh, those are not the kinds of questions that um, happily uh, I have to answer as a uh, as a federal judge. I don't know how I would answer those and whether my perspective would be different that uh, that in those instances everything is objective and law bound and, uh, and and there are no notions of morality that come into play. I think I probably would have a different perspective, but that's not the role that I perform. Thank you.